let's blow the lid off this right now. The whole Jurassic Park franchise is just a straight ripoff of Rinse Mangle, the gnome of even more. <laughs> I'm Ben McKenzie, and not Elizabeth Flux. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month, we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books or short stories with a special guest. This month, we're reading Rinse Mangle, the Gnome of Even More, which luckily for me already has a pun in it, because sadly, Liz can't be with us this month to provide one. And our guest is comedy writer, podcaster, and author, Andy Matthews. Welcome, Andy. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on your wonderful podcast. It's an honour and it's a very exciting thing to be included. <laughs> it's a great pleasure to have you here. You are, of course, uh, and this is this is true of so many of the people we have on the show, a massive Terry Pratchett fan. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. You know, like I'm, I'm I guess like a lot of people, I'm, you know, I'm somebody who, who dropped off at a certain point, but there was mm. a very, very intense and sustained period of heavy heavy to industrial grade Pratchettism um, <laughs> through <laughs> through my teens and uh, and early 20s yeah you're making it sound vaguely filthy but that's okay <laughs> we're all right with that. did you get back on the wagon later in life only very recently like you know I think I think basically just that the internet and computers destroyed my brain for a really long period of time and I basically <laughs> forgot how to read and um <laughs> Yeah, then not that long ago, I picked up Feet of Clay and I just was just completely overwhelmed by the volume of jokes and the quantity, like, and the incredible craft of the story structure. And, you know, it's it's really fantastic to take that, you know, unintentional break and to come back now just with a bit more awareness, like... And, and actually able to get some of the jokes because, like, you know, <laughs> looking back, I'm like, now, I'm amazed I enjoyed the books at all because I don't think, you know, I'm reading through it. I'm like, I didn't get that joke. I didn't get that joke. I didn't get that joke at the time. And now it's it's all there. <laughs> I've read it all. It's all gone in. And now it's, you know, you reread it and it suddenly crystallizes into the shape. And you're like, oh, God, these aren't just words. But, yeah, just the, the way in which it's all put together. It's really incredibly good stuff. Yeah, so I've just been, you know, pulling out my old copies and, yeah, rereading a few things. And I recently reread A Life with Footnotes, which has really inspired me to read a lot more again as well. But, yeah, no, I, mm. I used to absolutely be, you know, I, I would get a Terry Pratchett book for my birthday. I would get a Terry Pratchett book for Christmas and I would read them just like I would devour them like, you know, like, you know. That, to use that, that yeah. cliche, and I, I would read them, you know, and I would stay up so late. <laughs> it was affecting my life. I, I, you know, was not doing well at school. I would take them into classes, and I remember getting told off for reading them under the table in maths. 
but you know i would read it all the way through and then i would just straight away turn around and just read it again straight away because i i just had to have it and yeah seeing a new book on the shelf or finding you know an older one in a secondhand bookshop that i hadn't read was just such an incredible like you know that 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 look that they had with those old kidby covers mm you know, you could pick them out if you were if you knew what you were looking for. You could pick them out from a on a on a on a on a shelf. You know, just the spines. You could just those those weird bulbous shapes. You could you could see them from the other end of the secondhand bookshop and just yeah, mm, yeah. It was it was just like it was just like gold. It was just like you know, yeah. <laughs> it was like finding a nugget. It was like yes. a lumpy nugget of of yeah, literary a, cover a, gold. A, a lumpy bulbous nugget. <laughs> Yeah, they are we, quite bulb nuggety, nuggety. Those 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 covers, you know. There's a there is they a are, lot of that. all the muscly uh, yeah. characters and mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. rippling and and the you know there is a lot of golds and hmm. <laughs> we've often remarked on the lumpiness of the um, the Kippy <laughs> style. Uh, sorry, the Kirby style. I should say. I mean, I oh, think- sorry, I said Kippy. I meant Kirby, but it's no, no. I won't be the first person to have made that mistake. No, I mean, look, it's really, it's, it's Pratchett's fault for going from one illustrator to another yeah. who had such similar names. It's yeah. very difficult for all of us. Well, um, you know, he didn't, he didn't waste anything. And why waste uh, a good, you know, <laughs> four fifths of that name? He did, he did like a, the matchstick trick, you know, where you turn a number it's, into another exactly. number, but he did it with the name <laughs> of one artist into a, another mm-hmm. artist. Did you read all? Have you read all of them, or are there still a few that you've never read? There are still a few that I've never read. Probably, yeah. You know, um, mm. post like two thousand and five, I yeah. haven't caught up with a bunch of them, and uh, that makes me sad. But I, you know, I know that I will at one point. Yeah, that is. Look, there's some joy in your future. There's some. There's some real. There's some really great yeah. stuff. Uh, in those last ten years, yeah, that's exciting. That's exci- I'm excited for you. Abby. Oh, great! <laughs> that's yeah, a, what a treat! Um, Thanks. There's something to look forward to in life. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people like you know got into the disc world and kind of just read that. But did you did you when you were really into him? You know, you were devouring all these books every night. Oh, did you read his other work as well? Yeah, of course. <laughs> every, everything. Yeah, yeah. It's all um, grist for the mill, you know. You you got to you got to feed the furnace, and you'll you'll chuck in strata. You'll throw in the dark side of the sun. You know, it's yes. whatever whatever it takes. The the beast is hungry. Um, <laughs> you just whatever you can get, whatever yeah, pratchet yeah, you yeah. can get all, is the best your, pratchet. Your johnnies, your bromeliads, your bromeliads. Which you got to say, what an absolutely phenomenal pun! What an absolutely breathtakingly like. Puns are very rarely beautiful and weighty and and heartbreaking almost. Like how could it mm. all be in there? It's just I don't know. It defies everything. The name the Bromeliad for the series mm. Mm. did that also emerge later? Because the Bromeliad is just a metaphor early on the we're getting we're getting it's- into it here, but if you've covered truckers already, people know they should know. Yeah. I mean, if you haven't, listener, if you haven't listened to our episodes, we have covered Truckers, Diggers, and Wings, all three books. Um, quite early on, we did them in our first couple of years. I was actually reading about this today because I have not been able to fully clarify this. My understanding is the name Bromeliad came about, I think, and I this might not be right, and I've found it difficult to verify, when they were first collected into a single volume. 
Um, <laughs> and they were always called that when they were published together in the United yes. States. Yes. But I think only some early and then much later editions were called that in the UK where they were also just called the Book of the Gnomes or the Gnome yeah. Trilogy. So, yeah. uh, which seems interesting to me because normally you expect the weird classical illusion name to be the one that mm. the UK gets and not the yeah. one that they change it to in America. Um, but, I, yeah, so I don't know. If you know, listener, I've not had a whole bunch of luck confirming any of that. It's one of the things that's... Uh, not everything is actually that easy to find out on the internet. It's yeah. it's just a random massive pile of facts and some facts are harder to find than others. So yeah, uh, if you know, so to let be us clear, know. What I really want to know is I want to know when Terry right. put the bromeliad, the plant, as a metaphor for journeying and oh, I see. you know transcending your 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 you know wherever you are going going to another place, all that sort of yep. stuff. When he put that in truckers yep. Did he know that there was a pun to be had on the Iliad that would be yes. would turn out to be incredibly useful if he wanted a title for a trilogy of these books? That's There's no a... way he could have known. Oh. I can't believe it. I can't believe that he would have done that and not made use of that pun at the earliest opportunity. Well, just to clarify, as we didn't remember this during the discussion, Pratchett absolutely did not think of the bromeliad pun during the writing of truckers because the bromeliad doesn't appear in the story until the second book diggers by which time he definitely knew it would be a trilogy but it's still a mystery to us which idea came first its use in the narrative or its use as the name of the trilogy please let us know if you have any insight yeah that's see because that that's i think that's the crux right like if he'd Mm. known he would have done it because yes. I think you could have called that first book, you could have called just the first book the Bromeliad, mm-hmm. and it could have been like the- Because, you know, it is the story of a journey. Indeed. You know, it's not a very strong analogous journey to the Iliad. I mean, I'm sure if you pick apart the whole trilogy, there's lots of bits that make sense in, yeah. in that. But in general, it's just a general epic journey, but much smaller. So, it makes- The pun <laughs> works on so many levels, Andy. Yes! Um, yes! So- I think Yeah, I don't know. I feel like he loved doing research and he loved also mm. finding things during his research that he seemed he would just write down. This is this is the impression yes. I get. I don't know if he's literally said this anywhere, but the impression I get is he obviously did a lot of research, but he would often find interesting facts while he was researching something else and he'd write it down and go, That's good. That should go in a book later. Cause he, mm. he never wasted anything. You know, as yeah. we're about to talk about with this story that turned into a whole three other books. Um you know, he never wasted anything. If he found something interesting, pop it mm. in a drawer. And I don't know whether the pun would have occurred to him then. I think your theory, I, I'm sold on your idea that, you know, he just put it in as a metaphor and then later mm. on was like, that's a great name. We should use that. Um, what a beautiful thing. And I think what that speaks to is that if you're shoving this much interesting stuff into your books, yeah, you can then within that world that you've created still discover things. You know, like if, yes. if he wouldn't have been able to discover that in there if he hadn't, you know, gone to great lengths to like shove in this really interesting idea. Anyway, we're we're off topic. No, we're not off topic. I think this is fine. This is fine. We'll come back to the Romilliad okay. and, and Truckers, I think. But um, we should get into the story because we are here to discuss Rince Mangle, the gnome of even more, mm. which again, that is another pun there, isn't it? I mean, it yes. is. When we read a book, 
We read the blurb before we get into the discussion of the book. Obviously, there's no blurb for a short story. So here's what he had to say about Rince Mangle, the gnome of even more, which will contextualize oh. the conversation we've already started having. <laughs> this is one of the pieces I used to do on Thursday evenings, an earlier and shorter version of what became Truckers. The name of the protagonist finds an echo in the later creation of Rincewind, the wizard, who first appears in The Colour of Magic. The thing about these author's notes is that some of them are quite interesting and insightful and tell you something you never knew. And other ones are like, that's just a description of what this is. We know this already. (laughs) But that's okay. That's all right. You know what I got out of that is one of the pieces that I used to do on a Thursday evening. And I'm assuming that that means that he wrote all of this in a single evening, right? Oh, this no, was- no, 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 no. No? No, not the whole thing. So? No, because no, this was it was serialised, you see. So he he wrote this for right. the Children's Circle was this a collar. It was like a, a, a children's page in this local newspaper, mm. the Bucks Free Press, that he worked at for quite a while. And one of his jobs, because he enjoyed writing fiction and he was a junior reporter there, Actually, he might not have been a junior reporter. I think he was like a sub-editor or something. I can't remember what his actual role was. But anyway, one of his jobs there was to write stories for the children's page. And yes. so this came out a little bit at a time. And basically everywhere where there's a like a, a you know, I, I don't actually know what the term for this is. Do you know, Andy? You're, you're an author. You must know this. You know when uh, when there's that gap and then um, in between paragraphs in the story, yeah. I, there is a name for that. And I can never remember what it is. Do you know what the name for that is? We call that a paragap. Uh, no, a paragap? <laughs> no, I didn't. I made that up. <laughs> okay, well, now it's a paragap. Uh, someone, um, look, 100 people are already composing an email or a tweet mm. or, a, or, a, or a toot or something to let us know what it's actually called. But anyway, disappointingly, and regardless of whether it's just blank space or has asterisks or some other ornamentation, the gap we're talking about doesn't have a special jargon name. It's just called a section break. Which reminds me, depressingly, of Microsoft Word. What I mean is, in this story where there's that gap where, you know, it's like a new scene in sure. a film, I think that's like one week's instalment. Okay, So sure. he was writing okay. that every Thursday, not the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> right, because I, I, I knew about the, the Bucks Free Press and the, the, you know, Uncle Jim or whatever it was called, the section yeah. that he did for children yeah. in there. And I, at reading this, because this is the first time I've read this short story for this podcast, reading it, I was like, this is a very long story to put into a podcast, into, yeah. a, into a newspaper. And I should have, of course, realized that it was split yeah. up in that way. And that makes sense because there is at least one of those paragraphs in the story where <laughs> it resets and re, re-explains where you're up to in a way that's quite yeah. um, jarring if you're reading it all as one short story. It feels very familiar if you're, you know, an old school Doctor Who fan. You're used to, you know, watching a couple episodes right. in a row where, you know, that 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 music comes in just near the end of the episode when things go wrong, and it's like, and then the next week it goes back, you know, thirty seconds or a couple of minutes and shows you that sure. scene again, so you've got context for why I things are see. so bad. So it was a little bit like that for me, but much shorter. <laughs> mm. It's the old, it, it, you know, insert tab A into slot B. Um, yeah. connective tissue. Exactly, exactly. Doctor Who universe. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how much he edited it for this sort of republished altogether version. I get the impression maybe not very much. Yes, I do as well. But I do like that it means it's split up into like eight little chunks. Mm. And uh, I don't know about you. Have you read any of his like really early like children's stories before? Is this your first one? This is the first one. 
yeah, that I've come to. And I, it's very interesting reading this straight after reading A Life with Footnotes and, and being able to sort of put it all into a context of where he was and what he was doing mm. at that time. So I think he was 25 when he did this and he would have been at Buxbury Press for quite a while. Yeah, I think that's right. And he's really, I guess, at this, you know, by doing this kind of thing, he's doing that real getting in his 10,000 hours. He is having to produce really regular, <laughs> fresh ideas and content to a deadline you know, for this, for this little yeah. page and like just, just getting in that mileage of writing and cre- yeah. being creative. And what, what amazing writing practice, like to get, mm. basically he's being paid yeah. to just do what, I don't know about you, but I, as a writer, like particularly even nowadays, but you know, particularly when I was starting out writing stuff, I think one of the hardest things to get over is that sort of the, the, the discipline to actually just sit down and write something. And I, I, in fact, I think it was a previous guest, Stephanie Convery, a journalist who was on the podcast a couple of times, said that she picked this up from someone else, which was the idea that, you know, the way that she would get things written is just sit down for half an hour every day and she wasn't allowed to do anything except write. And mm. so some days it was okay to just sit there and do nothing, but you weren't allowed to do mm. anything else. And usually by the end yeah. of the half an hour, you'd written at least something, you know. And I'm like, yeah, that kind of discipline is is important and it's hard. Like you have to learn that the writing needs to come out. It doesn't matter if it's perfect. And here's Terry Pratchett working in this newspaper, basically being told, for your job, you must practice creative <laughs> writing every yeah. week. <laughs> oh, what a dream. Because, yeah, you're right, it's hard to justify that time to yourself and it's hard to justify that time to other people who might be in your life who might look at you sitting there while other things around the house are going undone and you're just staring off in, into space yeah. or whatever and yeah you you, you look like a, a lazy good for nothing and uh yeah <laughs> and yeah and, look, no, and you it, probably it, feel it, like one too but you're not you're not mm, it's a it's sure. an important part of the creative process yes ideating thinking you know getting there Mm. As long as that's what you're actually doing. <laughs> Let me just put that oh, out yeah. there. You just, you sit there playing on your phone. That doesn't count. <laughs> no, but that does happen too. Let's not pretend. Okay. That's true. It, it does. It does happen. Yes. But look, we, let's, let's get into this story. Yes. Look, if you've read Truckers, this is very, very familiar, but I do want to highlight a few of the things that are different. For example, in this first section, it's just straight, straight in the point. You know, like it's a kid's story. It's like once upon a time, like it even starts once upon a time, quite literally. Yeah. Um, and yeah. importantly, Rince Mangle, which is a great name, <laughs> a great name. Um, <laughs> but Rince Mangle is a gnome with a G, is a regular fantasy folklore gnome. Gnomey. Yeah. Um, as opposed to the gnomes in Truckers, who are gnomes with no G and who, as we find out, spoiler alert, are actually from outer space. They're tiny little mm. aliens. But these are not. Rinsmangle is not that. He's just a regular old gnome. He's supposed to be dressed like a gnome, but he's he's got a pointed hat. Like it says, of course. <laughs> um, but then he's wearing like a gross outfit made out of bits of moles and yeah, mice. yeah, mouse mouse skin coat and stuff. And I love I loved that little description of his his yeah. filthy little outfit. And he thinks he's the only gnome <laughs> left in the world, which is. Is quite yeah. That's another kind of echo, I think, of or you know, a future echo of yeah. the truckers thing of them not knowing how many gnomes there are or yeah, where they are, that kind of thing. 
It's got, I mean, even that though, like right at the start, it's got such a pratchety sensibility about it and lots of little, little jokes that, you know, I don't know. Like I think that kids would appreciate, but also give adults a bit of a chuckle. Like he describes, you know, even more the strange, mysterious land to the north of Blackbury, which, you know, Blackbury is a made up town, but it sounds like a real place. And it's a bit like yeah. saying, you know, oh, the, the weird, unearthly wasteland west of Wagga Wagga. Like it's that kind <laughs> <Yeah>. of <laughs> feel. Is this unusual place right next to a really normal place. Um, yeah. And then, you know, there's this gnome there who's living there and having not a very joyful life, which mm. is, it just sounds sad. But he's also, he's just like, I like his, his first dialogue is just like, blow this for a lark. I'm wet through and fed up. <laughs> he's just grumpy. Oh, yeah. It's great. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting that like this character and these characters, it feels like they're purely reactive. You know, they're just reacting to their situation. And hmm. it's, it's so interesting to, like, compare this to his later work and how rich and complex the motivations of everybody is and unfolding as they do across, you know, multiple stories. And yeah. and here it's just so, you know, it's a children's story that he's writing on a Thursday yeah. afternoon evening. And it's just here are the pieces. This is what happens. This is how they react. And yeah. it's so interesting to see Terry Pratchett's work stripped. It's like I, I never know, you know, the difference between plot and story. I can never get that that <laughs> definition in my head. But it's like sure. it's pure – I'm going to say it's pure plot. It's just stuff happening, right? Yeah. Without really – without feelings, without, you know, an inner life for any of the characters really. Beyond blow this for a lark – that's about as deep as we get into anybody's <laughs> motivation in the entire story. That's true. I mean, I think there's a little more here than I would expect. I mean, I, I, it's hard. I think one of the things that I'm find I find it hard with these early early stories to get an exact handle on is what age group they're really for. Because yeah, you know, we don't really have, or, or not in the same way anyway. We don't really have a children's page in the newspaper. Like the children's page mm. in the newspaper, certainly by the time I was reading them in the you know the the eighties was, you know, puzzles and cartoons. Mm. There wasn't, like, short fiction in there. Yeah. So, I'm like, oh, I don't know how old these kids are, but I'm guessing they're kind of middle grade age. Well, I read it to my kids. I've got twins who are six and I've got another one who's four. And the one who's four, he didn't listen mm-hmm. to anything I was saying. He was playing with his feet. <laughs> but Okay. That's normal. But both of the six-year-olds really liked it and they laughed a lot, like, you know, they, they, they were really mm-hmm. enjoying the story and they were also, you know, a, li- a little bit scared by bits of it and stuff as well. They were having a full experience. So it could work just as well for a bedtime story for really, really young kids as, you know, and maybe, oh, yeah, maybe good. a bit older as well if they're reading it to themselves. Definitely. Mm. I mean, I, I think too, like if we go back, if I think back to our truckers episode, we had Amy Kaufman, another author on the show we asked her about this you know what's the difference of writing for like kids to writing for adults one of the things she said is that you know middle grade age kids they don't care about why things happen like they'll just accept Mm. what you tell them is happening and they just want stuff to happen in the story you don't have to have this sort of deep motivation but i like that in this even there's just there's just enough to to kick it along yeah like when the owl turns up, like that's his whole motivation for leaving the moor mm. and going to Blackberries. Some owl turns up and goes, you know, you don't have to stay in this miserable place. There's other places you could be. And he's like, okay. And he leaves. <laughs> like that's, yeah, and he's off. That's his whole motivation. 
Yeah. Uh, the owl's description was pretty good, where the owl's clearly, like, just, just bullshitting just a little bit. Just a little bit. It's yeah. like, oh, yeah, Blackberry's great. And then there's these other places, and, oh, yeah, they're, they're awesome. Um, and he's like, how far away are they? And he's like, um... That's a very A.A. Milton, I think, a version of the owl, where the owl is the wise one, but only knows probably 10% more than anybody else, but, uh, you know, has to pass it off, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They they know more yeah. words, maybe, but not a lot more facts. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. But look, the story proceeds pretty quick. He mm. He gets fed up getting caught in the rain, so he hides under a tarpaulin on a lorry. And I mean, I think I think I learned the word lorry from truckers when I read it as a kid. Because we don't, you know, we wouldn't say lorry here. We'd say ute or truck. Um, yes. But anyway, like it's a normal, a lorry. like normal people. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I wasn't going to put it like that, Eddie. But that's no, funny. we that's use true. good normal words here. Just normal <laughs> words, language, proper language. <laughs> Not like what they use over there. That weird uh, things they say. <laughs> You're giving, you're giving some of our listeners a very bad impression of Australia. No, uh, that's, I mean, you're not you're giving them a very accurate impression of what a lot of Australia's <laughs> like, if we're honest. Thank you. Uh, but no, look, uh, he, yeah, he falls asleep, he wakes up, and it's stopped in a department store. Um, I mean, so far, minus all of the character stuff and the extra people who are in it, it's very mm. truckers-y. Except that, you know, Masculine, the main character in Truckers, is really getting on a truck and going, I think... I think getting on a lorry is the way to go. Like, I think this is going to take us somewhere better than where we are. Yeah. Whereas Rinspangle kind of just does it because he's sick of being wet and then he wakes up in the place that he was trying to get to. <laughs> yeah. Again, I think he's, I think it's just, you know, he's just a reactive character. He's just bumbling along and, and things are happening mm. to him. You know, and the, the start of Truckers, I think, is, is, is much, much darker in terms of, the oh, yeah. desperation of the situation that they're in. It's a genuinely hard and heartbreaking. Oh, the sequence with the fox is terrifying. Yeah. Terry's so good at cruelty and fear mm-hmm. and, yeah. and finding ways in which the world is cruel for yeah. no reason. He finds ways for people to be cruel for a very good reason. Then he finds other ways for them to be cruel for no reason and ways for the world to be cruel for no reason. <laughs> And yeah, yeah, that that provides at the heart of a lot of his stories. I think this really dark little emotional engine that drives people and drives the story. But yeah, that's that's yeah. you know that, and I think that's there in truckers that you know they've really got something to get away from. And when they leave the store again, they've got a real strong reason to leave that I yeah. don't think is uh, here. Yeah. You know, is present in this story. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, because you know, what happens is he gets to the story, meets the one other character with a name in the whole story, whose name is Featherhead. Not as good a yes. name as Rince Mangle, if I'm going to be honest. <laughs> um, and uh, and who shows him around the store? I like Featherhead. You you like it? Do do you imagine? Yeah. Why do you think he's called that? Where does where does that name come from? I reckon maybe once he had a feather on his head and it's just stuck. <laughs> you know what it's like with nicknames. Just, just, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, you can't get rid of him, can you? But I, yeah. but I, the thing that, I, that struck me that I was thinking about, that kind of off the back of what you were just saying about the cruelty, is that, yeah, in Truckers, like, the whole story is going to be destroyed. It's it's unambiguous. It's, it's mm. um. There's a term in, uh, I forget which role-playing game it is, 
uh, might be one that I worked on, which is called um, Our Last Best Hope. But the idea is that in that when you come up with a threat in the game, it has to be non-negotiable and immediate. So the idea is that mm. it can't be like a threat that you can maybe talk your way out around or, or out of. It has to be something mm. that's like, no, it's happening to you right now. And you can't just mm. avoid it. You have to stop it or run away from it. Like, you can't just go, oh, that doesn't yeah. matter. Like, it's difficult. And I think the destruction of the store is like that. Here, the reason they have to leave is that the humans, coincidentally, at the same time Rince Mangle shows up, have worked mm. out that there's something under the floorboards. They think it's mice, probably, but they've got a yeah. cat. And then later on, they find some some rat poison. And, I mean, that is stuff that- because you have the sequence of the fox in Truckers, which is kind of a bit like mm. the cat here. There is a sequence in Diggers where they do put rat poison down in the quarry. And there's this whole bit where Grimmer and the other gnomes in the quarry, like, have one of the workers tied up who's seen them. And they're like, you were going to poison us. You're, or mm. Like, they really give it to him because they're like, these people are evil. So, I think there's there's sort of hints of what it could be. But you're right. It's not really- it's like, oh, no, the humans might kill us. We should go. Yeah. Well, I mean, the destruction of the store is so good in Truckers because that is for them, that's the end of the world. It's the genuine, you know. It's the apocalypse, yeah. Yeah, it is the apocalypse. <laughs> and, um, yeah, whereas here it's just like, oh, yeah. You know. And in the end, to jump ahead, he ends up going and taking everyone back to even more, which was, you know, a place he didn't really like to begin with didn't seem all that good didn't you know didn't have a great alternative for anybody no. but yeah the motivation's bloody all over the shop mate but i guess you know i mean i get the impression i mean he doesn't say they lived happily ever after in fact he kind of because um, once once they've stolen the because just to just to get the plot out in case you haven't read the story listener yes so rinse mango gets to the store um he's being shown all the stuff they're playing with the toys in the in the toy department He's like, but you don't even have any guards. What about if they see you? And they're like, oh, they would never see us. And then a cat turns up because they have seen them, or at least they've noticed that they're there, and they all have to run away. Rince Mangle saves them from the cat with a bit of clever thinking and distraction. Mm. But then they're like, oh, this probably we have to leave. And then they find the poison. They're like, no, we definitely have to leave. They're going to kill us. They they know that we're here. Which is, mm. I mean, look, that is pretty scary. Was that the bit your kids were scared of, the cat and the poison? They were they were scared of the poison. I think the idea of the poison they mm. found scary. It's pretty full on. I mean, it's a bit like it's like that in the Amazing Maurice and his uh, educated rodents as yeah, well. Yeah, but again, in Maurice and in later stories, you would see the consequences of that poison. You would he mm. Terry would really dwell on how awful you know he'd really get into how yeah. awful the death would be it's not enough that it's poison it's that it would be this just appalling brutal way to go yeah whereas here it's just a it's just a thing it's just dropped like that with none of the weight to it i think which is fine that's true this is a that's very true. short story for very small children yeah, 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 yeah. I think I think that he's pitched it well. I mean, but it's still got lots of like nice little light touches. But just to, to finish the plot, though, that spurs them on to okay, we've got to leave. But how are we going to leave? We've got to take a whole bunch of stuff with us. There's like mm. two or three hundred gnomes in the store. We have to have food, and you know we've learned this way of life here. We don't know how to survive in the outside world. And there's none of the sort of religious and philosophical and political overtones that are present in <laughs> truckers. They're just like, oh, but we don't know how to live in the country. But then they find a book about teaching yourself to drive, and this gives Rince Mangle the idea, hey, maybe we could drive one of the lorries, and that's how we can get out of here. And they yes. steal one, and they do that, and they get away. 
Um, yeah. And then they go up to the moor on their own. But the thing he leaves it with is he doesn't say they lived happily ever after. He actually leaves it at the end on quite a note of we know it's going to be hard and difficult. Mm. But the little gnomes are like, but this is going to be fun. You know, it'll be cool, but it will be hard work. And we don't know how it works out for them. We just know that they make it back to the moor and then they, you know, with their supplies and stuff that they've taken from the store. Mm. So we don't really know. We just know that they made it there. And there's that there's that nice little coda at the end with the poacher who comes home for breakfast and tells his wife he's seen lights up on the moor. And uh, and she's like, no, you haven't. <laughs> I don't believe yeah. you. But maybe and, you will. And the, a little the, bit of a wink yeah, to, the- to the reader. I think that was my favourite bit. I actually really loved that. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe that's an old trick or something like that. But out of the whole thing, that was the bit that really like got me. Yeah, yeah. That way in which he's acknowledging the story, the nature of the story, and he's just inviting you to believe a bit more in this magical possibility. I think that's so exciting yeah. for little kids. Maybe that's used in heaps of those kinds of stories, but it's it was so smart and I loved it. Yeah, I think it had, it's had its day. I think it sort of was in fashion and it sort of went out of fashion and it came back in fashion. Mm. I think it has waves. That sort of idea of having yeah. that framing narrative that says this story is actually true. Like, you know, like something like uh, the Lemony Snicket books have that because, like, they have right. the narrator who's, like, pretending that I'm going to tell you about this, this re- like, mm-hmm. I'm a real person and this is the story that happened rather than just an omniscient third-person narrator. yeah. And now that you mention, I think there's a Beatrix Potter book about a little um, a little hedgehog that washes clothes, which ends in a similar kind of thing, just inviting the reader to believe in the story. And and, and again, I think it is a little. Yeah. It ends with a little hedgehog running up a hill away, and you're invited to say, look, right. was was she really a hedgehog, or was she a little you know hedgehog person who wore clothes? It's it's now that I think about it, a very similar little flourish mm. at the end. Uh, I think kids love that particularly because that idea of, you know, they're still learning how that works. You know, there's, there's, mm. there's, they know that there's stories and there's the real world and they start out not knowing that there's a difference and then they learn there is mm. a difference and then someone explicitly breaks the wall down between those two yeah. things and it blows their tiny minds. So I yeah. think that's probably why you do it. I think there's a certain developmental stage or reading journey stage through your life where you're sort of like, this is amazing. I can't believe someone's yeah. done this. But also you're giving them um, yeah. the choice to believe in something. That, that's really fun to imagine that you choosing to, you know, we, we, we want to believe that us choosing to believe in things can make them real. It's Peter Pan, it's mm. Tinkerbell, but it's also so many things in Pratchett. It's, um, is it Hogfather with the... Yeah, Hogfather, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think this is sort of where those ideas begin is that invitation mm. to believe in things. You know, yeah, exactly like in Hogfather where Death talks about how believing in things like the Tooth Fairy and the Hogfather and these yes. silly little stories that nonetheless sort of inform your um, morality or ethics lead to mm. you believing in things that are no more tangible but still vitally important for your Powerful. understanding of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I also just want to talk about how funny this story is because uh, you say your, your kids laughed frequently were there yeah. any what, what were the big laughs for them because this is the interesting i don't get to read stories to kids I, when i'm working with kids i'm getting them to do stories i don't get to mm. tell them a story so i'm intrigued to know what were their big laughs for them can you remember any 
I, I remember that they found the image of them driving down the lorry down the road and crashing into lots of things. They found that really <laughs> funny. And <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, I can imagine. And that is such a, that's such a great scene. And you can you can see why that scene alone would make mm. you excited to explore this story more. I think it's a beautiful image. You you love the yeah. the idea of little people, little things working together and being able to achieve enormous things. And the fact that the thing that they're achieving is just this very normal thing for us is so, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. it's so great. <laughs> But also kids yeah, want yeah, to believe yeah, yeah. that, you know, that, that they could have the power to influence the world. And, that, that, you know, the kids are the tiny people. And reading um, – mm. uh, I, I saw a reference, and you might have already covered this in Truckers, but I saw a reference to um, a little non nonfiction introduction that Terry had done to a staged version of Truckers um, mm. that's in – which one's is it the blip of a screen or a blink of a keyboard? In his one about nonfiction Oh, the slip writing. of a keyboard, the nonfiction The slip one, of the yeah. keyboard. It's called The Big Store, and he writes about his first time in a big department store and how mm. just incredibly magical it is and how vividly and intensely he remembers that stuff. And that's right. I think writing a story like this and making the, the gnomes be even smaller and dwarfed by this enormous bright world that they don't understand any of but it is so intense and all-consuming is, mm. Yeah, it's just a great way to just tap back into and concentrate, refine and inhale the essence of that feeling of being a tiny kid in a big store that's so exciting. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'd forgotten about that. That was a great piece. And I, I, I identify with that too because I, I, I grew up in a country town and mm. the biggest place I ever went to was like our local big departments that we had like one of those combined Kmart slash Coles yeah. mega things yeah. like on the edge of town and you'd go there and you know it was so big it had like kind of like this department store it had like a cafe in the middle of it because um, mm. you might be just shopping for ages and my mum would always like go in there and have a cappuccino and I can sit in there and have something to drink as well and it felt like a special thing that we were doing and I'd see stuff in there that I wouldn't see anywhere else. It was like a window into this bigger world that mm. was yeah. bigger than my town, you know. Yeah, well, it is it is its own world, self-contained universe, but also yeah. the uh, that idea of like, what would it be like if I could spend the night in here after everybody else had gone home and I yeah. could go into all the shops and I could have anything I wanted and I could play on that little helicopter ride thing or whatever – that's yeah. you know that's the night at the museum <laughs> dream of kids i think to have a world of their own that they can explore and yeah that's what this yeah. does or starts to do I, you know there's so much that isn't in this but could yeah be. that's true i think we hang on to that as adults though like i i, I used to run a, a comedy tour at, at the museum for the comedy festival here in melbourne Mm. And we did it after hours. And I look as much as the gags were good and it was a, a fun event. I think half the draw was just going to the museum when it was dark and there was nobody else there. Like people yeah. just wanted that experience where you feel like totally. I'm not supposed to be here. Ooh. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think there's, we, we hang on to that idea. It's a feeling we never quite leave behind. Mm. There's a couple of things in here. I don't know. There's um. So there's a famous series of books called The Borrowers. I don't know if you're familiar with it. 
Yes, I am. There's a bit where I wasn't sure if it was just a gag or if Terry was sort of acknowledging his predecessors, but there's a line where he says, you know, he's describing what the gnomes are doing where they've like set themselves up. And he says they've built themselves a home under the floorboards between the toy shop and the do-it-yourself department, though they had uh, borrowed quite a lot of railway track from the toy shop and built a sort of underground railway. And I was like, hmm. Now, I mean, that's funny because it's like, hmm, they borrowed it. It's like they haven't borrowed it. They've stolen it. But also, yes. is he just sort of going, I know I'm not the first person to write about this. <laughs> that is a great observation. I hadn't thought of that when I read it. And I love that interpretation that he is also... Maybe he knows that he's also borrowing the whole idea of these little yeah. people living in our, in our world. Yeah. I think for me, though, the thing about his stories, like the trucker's books, this story, um, the carpet people and the short stories that like this, you know, came before that. I think the thing for me about them is that apart from, you know, where it all goes wrong, it's not really about the little people interacting with regular humans. Which you see, mm. like in the borrowers, there's a lot of that, and that, and there's you know stuff in either they're you know they're always hiding from them or whatever. But it's more about them just surviving in our world and giving us a new perspective on our world. Yeah, and I kind of really like that. Well, yeah, I mean that's what so much of his work does in different ways. It's just like it's a different, just another way of reflecting on our world. You know, this one he's doing it in our world rather than you know in a different world where bits of our world just pop up. Sort of, yeah, almost the inverse. But yeah, I I love that stuff. I love it. Yeah. It's good. It's good writing. It's good stuff. It is good stuff. We've got some great questions from our listeners, but I think just before we get on to those, I do just want to take a moment to call out a few other, any, any other little specific bits that were your faves. Did you have any? I loved the joke, if you could read, I'd send you a postcard if I could write. <laughs> That is an alpha joke, great. and I I think that might be an old joke format as well, but it's just so yeah, it so be. economical with words. Such a mm. yeah, it's just a that's my joke of the story. I reckon. Yeah, I agree. I think it might be. Yeah, I don't know if that's a Pratchett original. Um, I think Pratchett was writing kind of at a time and in a tradition where he felt fine using some folk jokes that were just in the atmosphere like there's a famous one from eric where the librarian is hanging out above the really way too sexy magic books uh so it's warm <laughs> yeah and they describe he has a footnote that says the difference between something that's erotic and something that's kinky is using the feather or using the whole chicken and <laughs> that is not a pratchett original joke like that oh really people had oh. come up with that before him yeah, yeah. I actually, I, I found this the other day. Uh, I was looking for something else and I, I actually tracked out. There was a Kenny Everett video show episode where he just tells that joke as one of his punk characters. Like there's wow. no sketch. It's just the punk doing that joke. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, okay. And that was a, a few years before that book was published. So I'm like, okay. There's a, there's, there, and there's, there's other stuff as well. But now, yeah. you know, Pratchett is the one whose version is remembered because. His uh, books are the ones that have sold millions and millions of copies around the world. Yeah. Written by the winners. Yeah. But also, I think that those are jokes where you would never in a million years be able to find out who the original writer of that joke was. Mm. Like, But, you know, I mean, this one I think is the thing I could compare it to is a joke that my dad tells, which I think is from an old two Ronnie sketch or something, where they're just talking in letters. So it's like M. We could have some M and X like for ham and eggs. And I think it's like. Oh, yeah. 
if we had some M, we could have M and X if we had any X. It's, you know, and, and, you know, if you take that as just a, you know, almost like pro numerals as they are in that, in that sentence, you know, it, uh, you could replace them with the same words yeah. from this sentence and it would be the exact, yeah, it's, it's just a, it's, it, I guess it is just a formula, but so well applied. Yeah, it is. Mm. It is. And it's the craft that you do it with because I think we all do that as comedy writers. You know, we're all writing jokes where, oh yeah, I've seen this kind of joke, but I'm going to write my specific version of this joke, which only mm. works in the context of this sketch or this episode or this stand up mm. set that I'm telling. And if you weren't super familiar with a lot of comedy, you probably wouldn't recognize it as even being similar to another joke. But, mm. you know, once you get in, it's like anything. Once you get into the craft and you get into the weeds and you, you learn a lot about it. You see those patterns. You see those things everywhere. Oh, it's, the, it's the folk music tradition. If it's good it enough is. for Bob Dylan, yeah, totally. it's good enough for a stand-up <laughs> open mic night at the Expert. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and we know we know Pratchett was a big folk fan. He was a he was a bit of a folky. Yeah. Um, I do like that they take the time to make Rince Mangle a suit, a tweed suit, mm. <laughs> for no no apparent reason. They just like we don't, but uh, well, there is a reason. Featherhead says to his friend in the um, suit department, um, where there's a bunch of gnomes who are very, very like, say, "Oh, suits you, sir, suits you." They're very, they're very in that mold. But uh, he says, uh, "My friend here in the moleskin trousers, can't you make him something natty and tweed? We can't have a gnome who looks like he's just stepped out of a mushroom." And you're like, "Well, yeah. <laughs> which is great because, of course, we that's what we expect gnomes to be like, but uh, not mm. this one." The the whole bit with the cat was pretty good. We'll come back to that when we when we get to our listener questions. I do like that there's this sort of lore of gnomes in this story that is never really deeply investigated. Like, we know that they wear hats, of course, and it's established that Rince Mangle thinks he's the only one, but the ones in the store know that gnomes used to live in the country, mm. not in the town. But that's that's pretty much all we know about them. Yeah, he's um, they've become... Uh, urbanized. I think of it as it being a bit like the Matrix. You know, they're, you know, they're not living in the in the real world, and yeah. Ridgemangle is like um, the one or Morpheus, where he is, you know, I can show you the nightmare of the real world, basically, and he he takes them out of that <laughs> that ignorance is bliss thing that they're in, and he's like, no, this is what it's like out here. It's wet, and there are foxes. Yeah. And that's where it ends, you know. That is that's and that's how the first <laughs> Matrix film ends as well. And that's the end of my thesis. <laughs> well, now I want to write Rince Mangle Revolutions um <laughs> and explore what happened next. <laughs> well, that's what happened. He turned it into a trilogy. That is true. He did turn it into a trilogy. And the, he also talks, I don't know that we talked about this when we talked about the Trucker's books, but he did talk about possibly returning to the Gnomes after Wings, but it never happened. Um, but I mean, you know, he was never going to, he had so many ideas that didn't, yeah, didn't make it. And, and some of them would have been great, I'm sure. But no, I, I was really satisfied with the end of that trilogy and I don't, I didn't feel any mm. desire for anything else. Yeah. I feel the same. I mean, I, I love the gnomes. I would have enjoyed another story, I'm sure, but I don't think it needed it. I thought it was, it was fine where it ended. It was good. We're free to imagine what life is like on Planet Gnome. Just as here, we're free to imagine what life is like on even more when they're all well yes. kitted out with gear and and supplies and there's 300 of them and not one of them. Yeah, yes. I think hopefully they have a magical time in their strange yeah. mystery more. Yeah. 
<laughs> don't it's never established what's strange or mysterious about it, except that gnomes live there. <laughs> so who knows? And it's wet and shit. Yeah. It is. It is wet and shit. And there's at least one owl. No, it doesn't seem all that strange or mysterious. Mm. Yeah. I mean, also, I I don't know if I was a gnome, I don't think I'd be just casually chatting to owls. Like, I'm. if you're a gnome, you're exactly yeah. the right size to be eaten by an owl. <laughs> so, yeah, um, that's true. I would be very afraid. Mm. What's you know, Why are foxes a problem and owls okay? Yeah. Well, I guess because we like owls. They don't eat our chickens. They only eat mice, which humans don't like. So it's very, it's very sort of human biased opinion. Mm. <laughs> Whereas, you know, I'm pretty sure in the Bromeliad, they are scared of owls. Yeah. But look, there's lots of nice little moments and things in this story. Do have a read for yourself. Even if you've read Truckers, it's just a fun time. And I recommend, if you've not read any of the others, I do recommend his other short stories for kids that come from the same sort of time. There's four books worth. Mm. And, uh, some of them are like, that's okay. Some of them are really good, though, and they're all pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely encouraged to read more of these to my kids based on this. All right, well, look, we should get into some listener questions because uh, this, this could be a pretty short episode because we're talking about a pretty short story, but we've got some great questions, so let's dive into them. The first one is from Steve Lee on Twitter who noticed the line, the gnomes formed themselves into a human pyramid. It's interesting to see how human-centric this story is. By the time of Truckers, everything is well and truly from the gnome's perspective. So it would have been like a gnome pyramid. Um, Mm. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Did you pick that up when you were first reading it? Not at all. No, I did not. No. And I didn't, um, (laughs) you know, I mean, I I, I think what you're seeing there is the fact that these were probably written in a huge hurry. And he didn't have yeah. time to get into all the details, of the you know, the world building, which, you know, he no one can build a world like him. And later in his life, you know, hmm. he, w- he would get down into all of those details and everything would work and everything would be internally consistent most of the time. But this is <laughs> this is filler. Ultimately, I think. <laughs> I mean, look, you know, if I could write. This it, this is filler. Like I wish I could write as good as this filler uh, on my oh, days. It's, you know, it's incredible it's, filler. It's, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It's not as nuanced as you say, but it's still it's still solid. Like the prose is good, the jokes are funny. Uh, it clips mm. along at a, just the right pace, I reckon, and and it works broken up into eight little bits. I think those are things that are yeah not as easy to do as you might think. I'd love to know if he plotted out the whole idea first. And then just wrote a little bit of it at a time, or if he just made it up as he went along. I'd love to know which way he did it. I have a feeling he was making it up as he went along. I, that, just based on yeah. the fact that I, it, for me, them just returning to even more when even more at the start is set up as such a crap place. And the fact that they just end up there again <laughs> yeah. at the end, it makes it feel like these are just choices he's making on the fly. To like, well, I need an ending. Yeah. I guess, I guess, where's he come from? What does he know? What's been set up already? I guess he goes back there. If, you know, this is my theory is that a lot of his stories are characterized and defined by yearning. I feel like a lot of the time characters mm. yearn for things. And I think, and they're also, yeah. I think for a lot of the time, very sentimental about a more honest, or decent time or or something like that for, for the way things were and things being the way they were for a reason, whether or not that was right. And I think mm, mm. 
there's none of that in this story. Nobody, nobody's yearning. <laughs> no, Ritzbanger was just annoyed, really, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. And I think in the Bromeliad, there's a real sense of things that have been lost, connections that have been lost. There's the sense of there was this great gnome civilization that's disappeared. You know, they, mm. they've all lost something by this fragmentation and this passage of time, this desperation that they're in. And mm. they're driven by that. But that's not present. And I think, yeah, I, I, I really think that that's the feeling that I, I come away with so often from reading his stories, mm. that people really want things yeah, <laughs> really yeah. strongly. Uh, this is something you talk about in comedy writing, you know, when you're making, particularly like in something like a sitcom, when you're talking about a sitcom character, often one of the things you can do to really kind of give them drive that leads them into comic situations is to have something that they really want but then make sure that that really is not the same as the thing that they really need. Mm. So that character will be always striving for something and wanting something and, and going after something that is not the answer to their problems, that only makes their life more complicated or worse in some way. Uh, and they, yeah. never, they never really get what they need or they don't want what they need, but they do get it, you know? Um, yes. I think that's more what Terry would do. Mm. People do get what they need ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. regardless of what they think they want. <laughs> yeah. Happens when death comes for them as well. Mm, yeah. But, like, you know, that's what makes – that he discovered the way to make his story so emotionally satisfying, mm. which mm. is just like what are the chances of that existing alongside just the most incredibly constructed jokes you could imagine to have emotional stakes and emotional arcs that – are so rewarding. Yeah, I can't, I can't, it just doesn't seem possible. Like, Wodehouse yeah. couldn't do that. He could write the jokes, but he didn't have, there wasn't a, a fucking emotional arc in sight. <laughs> no, no. Well, they were, they were very, I mean, I think that, you know, Jeeves and Worcester, they are, they're like sitcom characters. They don't evolve because he wants to write like mm. 50 books about them. He doesn't want them mm. to change because then he has to like yeah. change how he writes about them and the, and what yeah. people loved about them is not there anymore. Um, mm. In the same way, you know, Sherlock Holmes doesn't – well, he does a bit, actually. That's not as good an example. Mm. But he still – he remains essentially the same. He becomes a bit warmer and a bit less, you know, of a, um, yeah. a jerk. But otherwise, he stays pretty much the same. So, I think that's a very sitcom-y way to write. And I suppose Rincewind is is one of those characters who probably doesn't change all that much. Yeah, I think – look, I, I've been thinking about that a lot because we've as we've been reading the Science of Discworld books – for the podcast, mm. I really feel like those late books, I think the main thing that's changed for him is he's kind of just accepted what he is. You know, yes. like he's, he's still, he's still sure. a coward, but he also has just sort of got to a level of, I understand the way the world works and maybe I can use that to my advantage at least a little bit. You know, mm. like even in like something like The Last Hero where he says, I don't want to volunteer, but I'm going to because I know the alternative is I end up on this mission anyway. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. uh, and yeah, then in the science of Discworld books, he like he saves the day several times because of that mm. sort of genre awareness <laughs> that he has about his, the yes. situations that he's in. I like that about him that he's sort of yeah. grown into that a little. Is it a Ridswin line to say that the whole point of running away is not to live to fight another day, but to live to run away another day? Is that is that Ridswin? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. I think that is a Ridswin one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, words to live by. So good. Uh, speaking mm. of Rincewind, obviously his name was inspired by this. We got a question from Paul Patiki on Twitter 
who says that before I heard it properly spoken out loud, I thought Rincewind's name was produced like winding a clock, so Rincewind. And seeing that in this story, Pratchett uses the name Rince Mangle, which is another thing that you wind. Have we all been saying Rincewind wrong? I mean, I think the answer is no, because there's a lot of official <laughs> audio books and um, readings of Pratchett saying the name. Yeah. Um, but uh, I had that same thought, actually, Paul. This is a thing that often happens with, with Pratchett, any fantasy. And you're reading a lot of words that are made up that you've mm. never seen before. Mm. You have to figure out how to pronounce them. Do you have any, yeah. like, pronunciations that you will admit to us that you think now are maybe a bit ridiculous? Oh, my goodness. I'm sure I have had them. Um, <laughs> I'll put you on the spot. Sorry, Andy. I shouldn't do that. Yeah, but I, no. I mean, look, this is a great question, but, I mean, what do you want us to say? I've got... I've got <laughs> I, there's nowhere to go with this. I don't. I don't. I don't have. No. A, it's a. It's a very good observation. I don't. I don't have an opinion. The only thing I will say is that having read um, a life with footnotes, wasn't there a, a mm. mention in there of how Rincewind was a name somebody pointed out to Terry later on that Rincewind actually oh, yeah, was already like, a character. It's in something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think people are always doing that. But, but how does that work with the the Rince Mangle? chronology you know well i think yeah who knows i mean i can imagine look we'll never know for starters <laughs> we'll never know who knows how somebody else's brain works but i can imagine a scenario where if terry ever read the book that has a character named rincewind in it or that or whatever it was mm. uh, and it went into his brain then when he was a young man at 25 he's like oh i kind of like that name rincewind why how could i change that what's funny rince rince clock rince C, Rince, Ma- Rince Mangle. Oh, that's good. And so he, maybe that was the inspiration for Rince Mangle. And then later in his life, he's like, oh, Rince Mangle, that was a good name. But it's, it's not quite right. It's too silly. It's too silly for this character. I need something slightly more serious. Yeah. Uh, Rince, uh, Rince C, Rince Oh, Rince Wind. That's quite good. And he's forgotten about the original source. So that's yeah. one That's one possible explanation. That, I, I actually but think also- that's a, that was a... A beautiful audio book, uh, you know, you, you've created an audio play for me there. That was a beautiful dramatization <laughs> of this circular thought process. And I, I, I think it's flawless. I, I, I believe it absolutely. All right, good. We've solved that mystery then. That's great. Mm. <laughs> but I think, you know, I think the other thing is Pratchett, because he puts so many references in on purpose, people are always seeing ones that aren't really there. Mm. Like when he uses an archetype that has existed for a long time and people go, oh, that's a reference to blah. And he's like, no, 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 we're both drawing on the same idea. It's not a reference to that specifically. They're just both drawing from the same well, you know, which I think is how he, I think that's how he put it. Fishing from the same river or fishing from the same stream was the phrase that he used when people sort of said, oh, did you base so-and-so on this other character from Mm. this other book? And he's like, no, we're just fishing from the same stream. I love that. Oh, here's yeah. here's a good question that might segue from that a little bit because he also liked to fish from his own stream. <laughs> I think we can agree. And Rin Betancourt asked us on Facebook. Now that's a euphemism. Uh, yeah, uh, I know. It's, I, oh, I feel bad about that. But sorry, Rin. Sorry to take your question with <laughs> this filthy language. But, uh, but Rin asked, what other characters have we seen modified or changed as Sir Terry Pratchett's writing improved? And I think I, I want to open this up a little bit because, you know, yes, there are examples like this where it's very clearly taken the same idea and done it again. Um, mm. And you see that with, like, jokes. You see that with things. But I think also there's the sort of same archetype, like we were just talking about, 
or type of character or situation that he's done multiple different ideas. And they're not necessarily mm. the same, but they sort of do evolve and change as he writes. But he, he did like to recycle ideas, and I think that's, you know, it's a fine instinct as a writer. Yeah, I mean, you can see how strongly and how quickly characters, as soon as he had a character in the Discord series, how quickly it evolved and became so much richer. Like, you look at how Granny Weatherwax changed from equal rights to what she became so quickly Mm. in Weird Sisters and all those other stories. Those first characters, they're like it feels like they're just a sketch, you know? They're just a shadow of what they're going to go on and become, you know? I think... Probably when the world, you know, when the Discworld was young in literary terms, everything was new and he was putting down these characters. Then once they exist, he's coming back to them and giving them so much more and building the world. And yeah, it, it I, you know, you can talk about the comparison between this story and Truckers or something, but like it's there mm. between Guards, Guards and Men at Arms as well, you know? The, yeah. It's, it's, it feels like a, you know, every time he introduces a new character, the second book for me always feels like a, like a step change, an exponential increase in the richness and the texture of the characters. Yeah. The second book in a series is always the one that I love the most because I, that's the one that really sets my brain on fire. I think. Yeah. It becomes yeah. so much more exciting. I think. The one that always comes to mind for me when I think about how he's sort of taken an idea and then evolved it and changed it is, uh, I mean, I'm going to go back to Rincewind again, but in the really early books, there's this recurring thing, particularly in The Colour of Magic, where Rincewind is continually disappointed that things run on magic. He's always hoping that there's, like, Mm. some higher order to the universe. And then there's that whole bit where they get, in order for them not to die, uh, there's some magical weirdness that transports them into an alternate universe where they're on a plane when their dragon is oh, like, wow. fall out of the sky. Yeah. And then they go That's back the into the That's the weirdest thing world. in all of the Discworld books. That's the strangest I know, it's a, I know. And there's nothing like it in any of the other one. It's so weird. Yeah. But, but in that alternate universe, he's like a- He's like a theoretical physicist or something or a nuclear (laughs) scientist of some sort, which is in part, you know, from his desire for for science. And then that completely, like, just disposed of later on, really. He never Mm. comes back. But what does come back is the character of Ponda Stibbons, who starts out as just, you know, in moving pictures, he's just a nerd wizard. But then Mm. he becomes the science wizard. He's the one who's always looking for meaning and trying to make sense of the way magic works in a way that the other wizards don't really care about. Like, they Mm. they care about big dinners and, you know, the philosophical implications (laughs) of tableness, but they don't really care about (laughs) how many thorns it takes to, you know, create a billiard ball. I thought that was really interesting, and I like that he sort of come back to that and gone, okay, well, how do I, you know, Rincewind just did that because he was cynical in the early books. But if I make a whole character and that's their thing, what else does Mm. that mean about them? And it probably means, well, they're quite serious, they're quite organised, they- Mm. They take things seriously. Yeah. So, I kind of- That's probably my favourite one, I think. I like that a lot. Yeah, that's interesting. Ian Banks for us a great question on Discord, but I think we've kind of covered most of the things you asked about, Ian. What are the biggest differences between this and the bromeliad? And I think we've we've talked about a lot of those things, but he did bring up- It's that- the yearning. The yearning. <laughs> it's the yearning. I did like this one, though, and we haven't talked about this so much, but he thinks Pratchett's styles developed more of a, a voice in the novel- 
these newspaper story versions, they have this sort of generic, whimsical, omniscient narrator style mm. is how Ian puts it, which is probably, as we were talking about, forced on him by the role of writing for a kid's page. Whereas mm. in the books, it's a more cinematic and knowing kind of narration. And I, th- I mm. think that's pretty spot on. Do you, what, what do you like about his sort of later narration compared to this? You can see how early on there are flourishes that feel a bit more forced. Things like, was it even at the start of The Colour of Magic, that C, how he uses that C, and then he describes Great Atuan, and oh, then he yeah. says C, this, and then C, that. You know, those things that feel like he's really trying to be a fantasy author as well. Yeah, he's like, look at me, I'm like... Yeah, yeah, I can, I can do this stuff. And he loses yeah. interest in that, and he just becomes his own thing. And he becomes so self-aware that he can play in the, the all the meta tropes of that that he would have used as just a, a gimmick early on, and mm. they become, you know, integral parts of the world. And he's able to, yeah, just have his cake and eat it too. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's great to watch it happen. Yeah, and we've talked a lot on this podcast about the sort of cinematic style of his writing. Not usually, we don't usually talk about that in terms of the narration, but more in terms of the way the plot moves and, you know, the fact that he doesn't have any chapters mm. and he'll, he'll do things like shot matching where the end of one scene kind of matches something at the start of the next scene thematically mm. or visually. All that kind of stuff is in there and it does feel very different to, yeah, a, a really short story like this. Yeah. I mean, that's the way I, I never really want there to be movies or TV shows or anything of the Pratchett stuff because I feel mm. like we've already got it. We've got the perfect yeah. cinematic version of these stories. No matter what you do, you couldn't do a version, a depiction of Ankh Morpork that is going to give us anything more than what we've got. It's always going to be less. There's yeah. so much in there. And you can, how can you ever cinematically make a, a, a river? that is so thick that you could walk across it. How can that be satisfying? Break bits off and eat them. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So I think you're absolutely right, though. Yeah, it is It is so cinematic. And I'm not somebody who visualises things in my mind as I read them, but you really mm. don't have to with him. It's all there. No, you get a really good You really get a good sense of it, even if you're not doing that. Yeah, I agree. Joel Mullen had a great exchange uh, with Ian on our Discord. Joel asked the question, who has better vision? a cat or a T-Rex, which is a reference to the fact that in this story, Rince Mangle distracts the cat, but then everyone's running away. They're trying to get into their trap door to get into their houses under the floorboards and be safe from the cat. And Rince Mangle just says, stand still. He won't be able to see you. Mm. <laughs> it, is, it is very Jurassic Park. Do you reckon Michael yeah. Crichton read this? Do you think that's where he got the idea? Because he certainly didn't get it from paleontologists. The whole thing. Let's blow the lid off this right now. The whole Jurassic Park franchise is just a straight rip-off of Rince Mangle, the gnome of even more. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Joel and, and Ian had a bit of a, an exchange because Ian said, do you mean right now or is it general comparison? Because if it's right now, my money's on the cat, <laughs> which makes sense. <laughs> uh, well, the T-Rex is not being alive. And uh, Ian also, after a bit more uh, clarification, posted a, uh, a video or an article about what cats see, which I, I would just put in the notes, but I do want to mention it on the podcast because uh, it's called What Do Cats See Through Their Eyes? And then in brackets, in all caps, it just says Mysterious Feline Vision, <laughs> which uh, mm. I thought was 
uh, a bit over the top, but um, we'll, well, I'll put a link to that in the uh, episode notes if you want to learn more about how cats really see things. Uh, David Butler got very excited because he's a listener who um, is usually reading quite a way behind the current episode of the podcast, but was able to read this story and get a couple of questions in. And I think we've kind of covered a couple of them, but you were just talking about how you don't visualize things when you're reading. But mm. David was saying that, you know, the, the picture of the tiny people, and we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but the picture of the tiny people driving a lorry via strings and levers and platforms was so very clear both in this story and in Truckers. Mm. And it made him wonder how much of Soteri's works are built around a single or couple of clearly imagined scenes. Do you reckon, and this is apparently something that C.S. Lewis has, like he describes seeing these clear pictures in his head about certain things, like the example that David gives is uh, the fawn carrying packages through a snowy wood under a lamppost. Mm. And he's he he asks, do you reckon, Terry did this, do you think you can pick out any clear picture moments in any of his books that you think that was the idea that he had and then he built the whole thing around it? I will throw one out there, and it's it's yeah. less a scene and it's more a joke, but it is also a scene. I'm pretty sure he's on record somewhere as having said that Weird Sisters just came out of the idea for that first joke where the witches say, when shall we three meet again? And then there's a pause, and then, you know, and they're on the hill and there's the lightning, and then one of them says, well, I can do next Thursday. <laughs> um, you know, that, I think that was the scene that he was like, I, I want to do that. How do I make that work? And that's why it ended up being, you know, Macbeth uh, slash Hamlet slash witches. So, I think that's one for sure. Yeah. I mean, you've got to look at small gods and say that like that image of the turtle being carried by the eagle or something like that. I mean, falling and hitting the guy on the head. Yeah. You know, I mean, that the whole punchline of that story is built around how powerful that image is. Mm, that's true. Yeah, you know, and things like sorcery, the towers battling and being held together with the power of these wizards' minds. They're fantastic, mm. rich scenes. But I don't know. I, I couldn't tell you if, if what order they came in. Yeah. Yeah. But they are there. Yeah, yeah. I, I do feel I like I kind of agree with David, though, that when I was reading this, I was like, yeah, I think he wanted to write the book because the idea of these little gnomes driving this truck was just such a great mm. idea that he wanted to to do it again bigger. Mm. And, you know, that's why the book's called Truckers, even though it's not really about the truck journey. Like, that's yeah. sort of the plot thing. But what it's about is, you know, this theme of, of having to relearn what you think you've learned and, you know, see the bigger world that's around mm. you and, and understand where you've made assumptions or gotten used to a certain way of thinking that isn't mm. what everyone else thinks. And uh, yeah. I, th- I think that was what drove him to write it more so than, because this was one of the other things David asked is, you know, I had all these questions when I was reading this story, which was like, where do the gnomes come from? What's their deal? And he was like, oh, wait, no, I know the answer to this because they're in the other books. But I feel like this visual was more the impetus to write those stories than those questions. To go back to A Life with Footnotes again, I think there are some discussions in there of Terry's process and that he didn't really have a plan for his stories, that he would just work Mm. his way through them and then the perfect ending would just emerge out of what he, the pieces that he'd put on the table. Yeah, because he talked in several places, not just in the biography, but previously about the Valley of Mist. If you remember that, he sort of talks about when he was plotting things, he'd sort of start on one side of this valley 
and he could see the peak on the other side that he wanted to get to, and maybe he could see a couple of big trees poking up out of the mist, but mm. he didn't really know the way. He just sort of knew the vague direction, and so he just aimed mm. for the tree. So I feel like those trees and that other side of the valley were these sort of scenes that he could see in his head. Yeah. It's like, well, that's what I want to happen in the book. And there were things like, yeah, you know, the, right. the gnomes driving the truck and, you know, the tortoise falling on the head and oh, that kind of mm. stuff. Yeah. Look, we've got almost the last question here, which is from Sven. Sven always likes to send us one. And here's, look, here's one. I don't know if you'll be able to answer this. It depends what short stories you've read before. But uh, he asks about short stories in general. Do you like the rough ideas in the short stories better or the longer book versions where he's done them again? For example, Sven mentions that he really likes the witch trials that appear in the short story, which is not very short at all, The Sea and Little Fishes. And he liked it better in the short story than he did when it appears again in one of, in the later Tiffany Aching books. It's in uh, Hatful of Sky. Uh-huh. I, I would agree with that, actually, because I think the witch trial, we, we actually get to see the witch trial in the short story. I don't know that I have a good answer for your specific questions, Fan, but what I will say is that I think when you have a short story, you don't really have time for a lot of plot. You can't really have, like, a whole bunch of stuff that happens. So, often what you can do instead is just explore one idea in a fair bit of detail to, to make mm. a short story work. Uh, and that means that if you've got an idea like, well, what if there were witch trials, but they were trials that the witches put on for themselves, like to test themselves. A, it's a great pun, but B, it's a funny idea. And you can just explore that. You can just have a short story that's just about the witch trials. A whole book about the witch trials wouldn't really work. You'd need a whole plot where the witch trials were kind of incidental, I think, which is what you get in the later Tiffany Aiken book. So I think when there's an idea like that, sometimes the short story is better because it's it like gets into it a bit more. I don't like short stories, so I no. I'm gonna disagree. Oh. <laughs> I have I have ruined. Uh, what have I done to you, Andy? I've invited you on the yeah, podcast to no. talk about a medium you don't even enjoy. No, it's fine. I just always, when there are emotional stakes in a short story, I it always feels cheap to me. I feels like I've been dumped into this situation and expected to care about these people that I've just met, and right. And it feels unearned. And okay. when there aren't emotional stakes, it feels just like a little piece of um, a trinket, you know, a little, right, you know, a device, which, which I can really like if it's a great device, if it's a really cool little exploration of a concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds like maybe the, the witch trials might be that. Yeah, I love – I never know how to pronounce his name. Borges? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. Argentinian writer. Love his stuff because that's very conceptual. Yeah. But generally, I will like a longer story, please. Thank you very much. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I would recommend The Sea and Little Fishes because it's a very long – It's a, it was. I mean, it was originally published in a collection of novellas. So that will give you an oh, idea wow. about how long it is. Yeah. Uh, and it's great. It's a lot of fun. Great. Look, that kind of brings us to the end of our questions, though. So I want to say thank you, Andy, so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Because I hadn't read this story before, I was surprised at how similar it is to the truckers' books. But I'm very happy with that because it's given me an excuse to talk about them a little bit more and to get you on the show. So (laughs) thank you very much for coming along. Um, If people want to find out more about your work... You are a podcaster, so you do the Pop Test, which is like a science comedy quiz show for the ABC. Yes, although there's no we, – we got we got discontinued, so there's no more Pop oh, Test. No. There's two seasons that you can go back and enjoy. 
yeah science quiz with comedians and scientists and they are very enjoyable we had a lot of fun making those for the abc but yeah those are all still there to enjoy and yeah i also have the podcast two in the think tank that i do with my life colleague alistair tremblay birchall yes yeah that's where we come up with five sketch ideas each episode and it's just pure nonsense so <laughs> yes if you've got nothing else to do you know maybe why not try that <laughs> Excellent, excellent mm. sounding nonsense. Now we we've discussed a, a children's story today, and you are an author, and you the books that you've written are for children, are they not? Yeah, that's right. I've written two short graphic novels with my friend Peter Thomas, who's an illustrator in the Gustav and Henry series, and it's about a pig and a dog, they're best friends, and they go on adventures, and you know they do silly things like going to the moon to retrieve a lost shuttlecock and going back in time to return a library book. <laughs> I mean, that sounds, they sound very Pratchetty to me. <laughs> I, I would great. be lying if the influence wasn't in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what kind of age are those intended for? Yeah. So young, young readers, I think, you know, if you, if your mm-hmm. kid is reading at five or six, they might enjoy them. And then hopefully and yeah, kids who are 12 and 13 have enjoyed them as well. So basically buy them, just buy a copy. You'll know somebody, somebody who wants to read it. <laughs> Just get into there's it. There's jokes just in there for adults. Right, we'll if you if you like the play The Dollhouse, uh, there's an extended <laughs> riff on The Dollhouse in um, Volume 2. Wow. Okay. Mm. All right. Now I've got to check this out. This is amazing. Okay. That's fantastic. <laughs> if people want to find out more about those books and your podcast, where's the best place for them to go on the interwebs to find out more about what you're up to? Oh, I mean, just Google my name, I suppose, is the is the is the... <laughs> Yeah, that'll that'll Do get you? me somewhere. I had a, okay. I had a website, but I didn't maintain it, and uh, I couldn't be bothered paying for the thing. Do you? Can I ask? Like, we both have names that are made up of very common, you know, sort of white Anglo mm. dude names. Mm. Do you have the problem that there's other people with your name more famous than you? Because I certainly have that problem. I have the problem that there's another children's author called Andy Matthews who's more <laughs> successful than I am. Yes. Oh no! That doesn't wear. That doesn't. That doesn't eat away at me or anything. That's fine. All right. Well, then, just just so the listeners know, the name of your books are Gustav and Henry. Gustav Henry, and Henry. H e n r i. Yeah. I'm going to look them up. They sound great. Well, look once again, Eddie. Thank you thanks, so much man. for coming on the show, and thanks also to you, listener, for listening to Pratt Chat each month. It's the reason that we make the show and we really appreciate having you as our audience. We also appreciate all of you who send in questions, those of you who are subscribers and help us keep the lights on here at Splendid Chaps Productions and everyone who helps us out any other way. Uh, You can do that if you want. You can go to our website, pratchettpodcast.com, find out how you can support the show. Uh, One very important way you can do that is just by telling people. If you know anyone who you think would enjoy it, post about it on social media, put it in and email newsletter. I don't know. Do you even have those anymore? Who can say? But we would love you to let people know about the show if you do enjoy it. And indeed, let us know. You can get in touch with us and answer our questions. For example, one question we have is we definitely won't be doing an individual episode for every single short story that Pratchett wrote. He did write, despite some of the things he says, quite a lot of them. And they're not all long enough to sustain a whole episode. But we would love to know which ones you'd like us to do. We'll definitely be doing all of the rest of the Discworld ones we haven't done yet. But if there's one that you particularly like us to talk about, let us know. You can email us at chat at pratchatpodcast.com 
or you can get in touch with us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And another thing I need to tell you, we're also now on Mastodon. If you're not familiar with Mastodon, it's another social media platform. It's a little bit like Twitter. It's a microblogging platform kind of thing. And if you are on Mastodon and you'd like to follow us there, you can find us at Pratchat at Mendedrum.org. Yes, that really is our instance name. We don't run it, but where else could we go, really? It seemed like the only appropriate place. Now, one of the main reasons people get in touch with us on social media is to ask us questions for our next episode. And the next one is quite exciting because for the very first time, we're turning to Pratchett's non-fiction work. Yes, we will be discussing some of his writing about genre and fandom, and we'll have a special guest, author, publisher, and role player, Peter M. Ball. Oh, I'm so excited about this. Now, um, because they're quite short, we're going to cover a few of them together. So specifically, we're going to be discussing the pieces Kevin's Weird Ideas, Let There Be Dragons, and Notes from a Successful Fantasy Author, all of which you can find in the first section of A Slip of the Keyboard, titled A Scribbling Intruder. Now, uh, we're also, as a bonus, uh, we're going to be covering The Introduction, which was written by Neil Gaiman, because it's our first episode about that book. And uh, because it seemed fair, we're also going to talk about Pratchett's writing about Neil Gaiman from the same book, Neil Gaiman, Amazing Master Conjurer. Now, we'll have a list of all of those pieces on our website. We'll put a blog post up there so that you don't have to try and remember them. But if you read those and you've got questions, please send them in. You can use the hashtag Pratchett65 or just send us an email. And the episode after that, it's back to the novels. And we're going to welcome back a guest who we ended up talking about this episode. That's Amy Kaufman. Uh, She's coming back. uh, Fantastic author and wonderful guest from all the way back when we discussed truckers. Must be like four years ago now or longer. Anyway, Amy's coming back to talk to us about the fourth Tiffany aching book, I Shall Wear Midnight. That episode will be out in early April. So if you've got questions about I Shall Wear Midnight... Get reading now and get those questions in by mid-March using the hashtag Pratchat66. But that's it. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, don't go listening to any owls. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatter Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Andy Matthews. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton. We're on Twitter, Mastodon, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via PratchatPodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat64. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.